What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to another episode of Vanished in the Valley. So today, I'm going to tell you about a man named Kurt Sonnenfeld. I'm going to give you an update on one of our older cases we covered, and I'm really going to try to get to a missing persons case before the episode is over. So sit back and let me tell you about Kurt Sonnenfeld. Kurt was born December 18th, 1962, and just so you know, he is an American who has been granted political asylum by the Argentinian president, Fernando de la Rua, and other high-ranking officials. The reason why is he was able to convince them that members of the United States government had foreknowledge of the 9-11 attacks. Because, among other things, the massive gold vaults at the World Trade Center 6 had already been opened and emptied of their contents before the attack. Sonnenfeld had been employed as a videographer for the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and had unusual authority to document the rebel scene at the World Trade Center site immediately after September 11th's attacks in New York City in 2001. He made a total of 29 videos, but he did not turn them all over to FEMA. So this guy's life is about to get super fucking complicated. So let's just say he had a normal fucking life all the way up until September 11th. This guy was like super white bread, uh, you know, worked for FEMA. He'd gone to Colorado University. He actually had a couple different degrees, one in English and another one in economics. So just picture a total square white bread guy, married, and all of a sudden his life is about to be turned upside down. Now, shortly after the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, Kurt Sonnenfeld got a call from his boss at FEMA telling him to report to Ground Zero. He had just been named the official videographer for FEMA for the whole entire site. So he had basically like unparalleled access to every part of the disaster area down at World Trade Center. And what he got on video, he claims, is proof that our government knew what was going to happen. And they were either a complicit in it or actually had something directly to do with the World Trade Center coming down. So he gets to the World Trade Center and... At this point, the media were not allowed inside the fence perimeter, but Sonnenfeld, working as a reservist for FEMA, gathered footage of the disaster response effort that was later distributed to TV networks and broadcast around the world. On CNN, he spoke of the heroics of the rescue and the recovery workers and of the emotional toll of climbing on the pile. He said, I'll value friends and loved ones and even strangers much more. Now, because he had completely unrestricted access to the disaster site, he came up with about 30 hours worth of video footage. But out of that 30 hours, 10 hours of that footage somehow never got turned over to FEMA. 
These uh, 10 hours that he had may never even have come to light if it weren't for the events on New Year's Eve in the early hours of 2002. The emergency call came in at 1.40 a.m. and Denver police arrived at the Victorian house on Clayton Street within minutes. The officers crossed the lawn and scaled the porch, and through the glass in the front door, they saw a dark-haired man dressed in a semi-formal outfit, black blazer, black shirt, and black pants. The man, who had called 911, appeared to be disoriented and distraught, and was slow to respond. He came to the door, but called out that he couldn't open it. The deadbolt lock needed a key, even from the inside, and he couldn't find it. Officers heard him saying something to the effect of, I can't believe she shot herself. They smashed a window near the front door and climbed through to the inside, finding a tastefully decorated living room and a grand piano. The man smelled of alcohol and had blood on his hands. He pointed upstairs and started to lead the way, saying he needed to be with his wife. But the cops restrained him. A struggle ensued downstairs. At the top of the steps, officers followed the smell of gunpowder, entered the master bedroom suite. There, in a sitting area beneath two skylights, they saw her. She was a slender woman in her thirties with long brown hair. She was dressed in a camisole and red underwear, and she was sitting on a dark blue chaise lounge, her head resting against the wall. A forty-five caliber semi-automatic handgun lay on the comforter on the floor in front of her. She was bleeding heavily from her head. When the police found Nancy Sonnenfeld on the chaise lounge in her bedroom, it was apparent she was still alive, but she was in a very critical condition, as the police could see a portion of the slug protruding from the exit wound in her head. The paramedics carried her out of the living room window and into the frigid Colorado winter night in view of the whole neighborhood who had gathered outside on the snowy street to see what all the fuss was about. The ambulance transported her to Denver Health Medical Center, where the doctors and nurses worked to save her life. Unfortunately, Nancy Sonnenfeld was declared dead at 7.30 that morning. She was only 36 years old. By the time Nancy had died in the hospital, police already had Kurt in custody and had awakened a judge to issue a search warrant for the house. Down at the station, Detective Ken Guru of the Denver Police Department interviewed Sonnenfeld on videotape. He volunteered to take a polygraph test and insisted he did not shoot Nancy. He repeatedly suggested that police carry out a paraffin test on his hand and on Nancy's, referring to a somewhat outmoded technique of detecting gunshot residue. That would clear everything up, he said. When questioned, Sonnenfeld waffled in his responses, claiming that there were gaps in his memory and that he was confused. If you do remember right, <laughs> he had been drinking. Come on, please. You were the ones that said he smelled of alcohol. So that could account for the gaps in his memory. Sonnenfeld said that he had been in the other room when he heard the gunshot and that Nancy had used a gun he had just bought for protection. They actually stored it in a holster hanging from the side of their bed. Him and Nancy had returned from a party in downtown shortly before she shot herself, Sonnenfeld said. He couldn't recall whether he and Nancy had argued before the shooting, remarking that he would black out a lot when he was drinking. But later, he said Nancy was very combative 
in general and must have hit him, noting his sore, broken nose and blackened eye. A booking photo of him actually does show moderate swelling and some discoloration around his eye. At another point in the interview, Sonnenfeld accounted for his injuries by saying he had bashed his head against a window in the jail cell because no one would tell him of Nancy's condition. So according to the interview report, when asked why his wife would kill herself, Sonnenfeld said that Nancy had grown angry with him for using heroin on a recent vacation to Thailand. Sonnenfeld added that he had struggled with substance abuse problems in the past. They wound up parting ways mid-trip, and shortly thereafter, she filed for a separation. Sonnenfeld was supposed to move out by Christmas, but he says they'd actually patch things up for the time being. When he drank at the New Year's Eve party after having been quote-unquote good for a month, Nancy probably saw no hope, Sonnenfeld said. So over the next few days, while police held Sonnenfeld for investigation, the Denver media went batshit crazy and latched onto this story like no other. Of course, the media is going to eat this up. It's a quote-unquote possible murder with the city's beautiful rich people. I mean, of course, it's fucking clickbait 2002 style. So in the course of the coverage, reporters begin to note a small but peculiar point of interest. Kurt Sonnenfeld had been in the news just a few months before, back in September of 2001. So instead of giving interviews about the heroic measures rescuers took back on September 11th, he was now in the media, but handcuffed and in a green jumpsuit, being led into court. He was formally charged with murder within a week of Nancy's death. Police said the scene at the house on Clayton Street did not appear consistent with a suicide. In early court documents and statements to the press, the law enforcement outlined some details from the scene that appeared suspicious. The entry wound was in an unusual location for self-inflicted gunshot toward the back of Nancy's head, rather than at the temple or beneath the chin. The wound indicated that the muzzle was not touching the head when the shot was fired, as it would be typical in a suicide. And the gun was also found several feet away from her body. Women also rarely use guns as a means of suicide. A second pool of blood suggested that Nancy had been moved slightly after she was shot, Officers also observed what appeared to be blood splatter on Sodenfeld's face. So neither Sodenfeld nor his attorney spoke publicly at first, and news reports relying on police statements painted a picture that looked damning. The Denver Post ran a headline, Slay Suspect Barred Police from Home. But... Check this out. The defense was quietly assembling a case of its own, and as the trial date approached, some doubt creeped into the prevailing narrative. The only fingerprint found on the handgun was Nancy's, and testing for gunshot residue did in fact show it was present on Nancy's hand, but not on Kurt's. There was nothing to prove that Sonnenfeld's hand had actually touched that weapon. And there was actually some evidence that Nancy had been in distress. The defense discovered a cryptic note in the bedroom that could have been construed as a suicide letter. Somehow it had not been taken into evidence by police. Written on a page torn from Nancy's notebook, the message read, What indeed is finally beautiful except death and love? 
Kurt, please get help. In the first sentence, which is a quotation from Walt Whitman, the word love was crossed out. In June 2002, one day before a scheduled court date, the district attorney's office dropped the charges against Sonnenfeld. Prosecutors didn't believe they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, an assistant DA said. After more than five months behind bars, Sonnenfeld went free. It was a dismissal without prejudice, though, meaning the prosecution retained the right to refile charges. But Sonnenfeld felt vindicated and hugely relieved. He just thanked God that it finally had come to a close, his father told the Rocky Mountain News. So Sonnenfeld may be out of jail and the charges may have been dropped, but the DA and the police department kept on the case. They kept investigating Nancy's death. As the officials in charge described, their efforts never let up after the dismissal. If anything, they gathered steam. A new DNA analysis was performed, additional information surfaced, and sometimes in surprising ways. So in December 2003, which was a year and a half after the initial charges were dropped, a judge signed a new warrant seeking Sonnenfeld's arrest for murder. But they have a little problem. Kurt is MIA. He has left America and he decides to flee to Argentina. So this is kind of like part two in Kurt's story. So let's get to Kurt's time, what he does in Argentina. On February 18th, 2003, Kurt Sonnenfeld arrived in Argentina's capital, Buenos Aires. Within days of arriving in Buenos Aires, Kurt actually met a woman that would become his second wife. Paula Duran spoke English as well as several other languages, and she offered to help Kurt find his way around the city. Sonnenfeld soon postponed his return trip. The couple married within 40 days of their first meeting. <laughs> Whoa, that's not strange at all. So early in their marriage, they had decided to go travel to the U.S. so Polly could meet the fam and everybody could meet her. But unfortunately, they couldn't really get a visa for her. So they decided to stay put in Argentina. They started building a life there together and eventually settled in a small house on Paula's parents' property in Bacaras, a scruffy, gentrifying neighborhood south of downtown. When he sought out employment as a videographer in Buenos Aires, he emphasized the work that had brought him some renown, his assignment at Ground Zero. A number of television producers responded by not hiring him, but asking to interview him about 9-11 and use his footage on air. Eventually, in the fall of 2004, he finally agreed to appear on a major primetime program to pay tribute to the victims and rescue workers for the third anniversary of the attacks. However, on August 30th, a week and a half before his scheduled appearance, there was a knock at the door at his home. It was a policeman Sonnenfeld recognized from the officer's post on a nearby corner. The policeman asked for technical help with a new digital camera, which seems super fucking weird, but Sonnenfeld obliged. <laughs> if he only would have listened to that inner fucking voice saying, nah, something's off with this motherfucker, stay put, his ass wouldn't have gotten all wrapped up. But, as Sonnenfeld fiddled with the camera the policeman handed him, a group of men in uniform descended on him. He had fallen for a trick. 
the men were agents of Interpol Argentina, and they were carrying out extradition papers from the United States Embassy. It came as stunning and devastating surprise, by Sonnenfeld's account. He couldn't believe they were still investigating him for murder. The arrest was the opening salvo in what would become, over the next 12 years, a bizarre international legal odyssey. So over the next seven months, Kurt was held in a Buenos Aires jail. And don't worry, his girl did not just sit there twiddling her thumbs. Paula actually embarked on a campaign to convince the Argentine authorities and NGOs that their case wasn't just cut and dry as it seemed. Sonnenfeld was no ordinary suspect, he said. This was a political refugee seeking political assignment from the United States government. The couple hit on the legal strategy of arguing that Sonnenfeld could be executed if he was sent back to the states. Colorado has the death penalty. Argentina is strenuously opposed to it. Colorado authorities repeatedly insisted they were not seeking the death penalty, but that wasn't enough for the first Argentine judge to hear the case, who set Sonnenfeld free in March of 2005, ruling that he was not convinced of the absolute impossibility of execution. The, youth, the U.S., however, had no intention of giving up and quickly appealed. Feeling he was in peril, Sonnenfeld decided to go wider with the information he and Paula had been sharing with key players for several months. They were advancing a separate theory alongside the capital punishment argument, and this theory was explosive. The U.S.'s relentless pursuit of Kurt, they said, wasn't about Nancy's death anymore. It was about something much bigger. It was all that 10 hours of video Kurt had not turned over to the U.S. government. So in the fall of 2005, Paula and Kurt found a powerful, sympathetic figure who could help them share their story. Rolando Granda was the television journalist who once worked for CNN International and now hosted his own national primetime program. He produced a two-night special on Sonnenfeld, and Sonnenfeld told an amazing tale with Paula, now pregnant, sitting by his side. The U.S. authorities, he said, know he is innocent to Nancy's death. The real reason they're after him is that, he, is that the United States has dark secrets to hide about the September 11th attacks. So Sonnenfeld and Paula claimed that they had pieced it all together once he was inexplicably rearrested on a baseless charge that had already been dismissed. Sonnenfeld had privileged access to Ground Zero, along with other sensitive sites, and he never handed over all the footage to FEMA. The U.S. officials must have figured out he was getting ready to show his tapes on television in Argentina and want to punish him for raising incriminating questions. Another incriminating accusation that Sonnenfeld came up with was regarding the black boxes. The official account says that none of the black boxes were recovered from the planes. The official account is they were incinerated, yet the seats inside the plane somehow survived. Well, Sonnenfeld is saying that he has video evidence that some of these boxes, in fact, did survive. Sonnenfeld's account to Grana was one that he would later tell again and again to other Argentine journalists and even on the floor of the nation's Senate. He has suggested that FEMA must have had foreknowledge of the attacks 
Giving up quickly, he got a call summoning him to the scene. And once there, he says, he saw a large empty vault beneath World Trade Center 6, a heavily damaged building adjacent to the Twin Towers that housed offices of the U.S. Customs, and he assumes that the vault could only have been cleared of its important contents in advance. So he questions why World Trade Center 7 fell despite not being struck by an airliner. Why airline seats survived, but the black boxes did not. All this he presents as evidence of the theories that 9-11 truthers have been embracing since the immediate aftermath of the attacks. One thing I'm certain of, Sonnenfeld said in an Argentine documentary, is that the agencies of intelligence of the United States of America knew what was going to happen and at least let it happen. He added that he is at the point of concluding that they, in fact, collaborated. So, as news of Sonnenfeld's theories begin to filter back to the U.S., many of his former FEMA colleagues were astonished. Don Jacks was not assigned to Ground Zero, but worked closely with Sonnenfeld at FEMA. He considered Sonnenfeld one of his best friends and visited him in his Denver house after he was released from jail in 2002. Don doesn't know what to make about Nancy's death, but about Sonnenfeld's 9-11 notions, he is unequivocal. It's just unbelievable that he's making these statements. Jax told GQ.com, People who know Kurt are, you know, embarrassed. And that seems to be kind of the attitude to everybody that Kurt used to know back in Denver. In Argentina, it's the opposite story. The media has embraced him. They believe him. He actually convinced their president and different senators of his innocence. So it's kind of like night and day the way he's been being treated in Argentina versus back home in Denver. In 2015, Argentinian Supreme Court agreed that Sonnenfeld could be extradited to the U.S., having been assured that he would not be executed. But <laughs> that has now changed. Since the decision of the Argentine Supreme Court only permitted his extradition, it did not mandate it or set a time frame. And Christina Kirchner, outgoing president of Argentina, was able to effectively block the extradition, citing human rights violations. So, as of now, Kurt, his wife, his two daughters, they're all happily living their lives in Argentina. And, you know, we, the U.S. still has an outstanding warrant to get his ass back here on a murder charge. And I guess, uh, I don't know, I guess that's where we're stuck because the courts are not going to force him to leave Argentina. Now, me, personally, I think he fucking killed his wife. And this whole 10 hours of evidence of, you know, some World Trade Center fuckery is just a side excuse. Now, this side excuse may have truth to it, but I don't buy for a second that Nancy shot herself because she was so upset that Kurt had fallen off the wagon. I think uh, Kurt here had something to do with her death and the prosecutors in Denver, Colorado, obviously know what they're doing. You know, just because he didn't have any gunpowder residue stuck to his hands does not mean that he was innocent. 
So I'm not sure. Kurt's story still is not over. It's kind of a thing that's ongoing and has been for almost, uh, fuck, actually for 20 years now. So I doubt we've heard the last of Kurt Sonnenfeld. But if we get some you know, cool information, I'll let you guys know on some upcoming episodes. But now, let's get to an update. So a few months ago, I told you about a missing 10-year-old girl from Iowa named Briasia Terrell, who would have actually turned 11 this last December. She was last seen alive in the early morning hours of July 10th in her hometown of Davenport. That's about 55 miles southeast of Iowa City. She had spent the night at an apartment belonging to her half-brother's father, 48-year-old Henry Dinkins, according to police. So the next morning, Briasia's mom gets a call that she's bit, she's missing, that Dinkins can't find her anywhere. So, of course, mom calls the police and makes a missing persons report. Well, Dinkins, we find out later, is a sex offender on the sex offender registry. So the police kind of like eyeball him hardcore since day one. They always said he was a person of interest. And apparently now he's been arrested, not for the murder or not for anything that has to do with Briasia. Court and jail records show Dinkin has a lengthy criminal history. And like I said earlier, is a registered sex offender who was convicted in 1990 of third degree sexual abuse involving a minor when he was 17. He was most recently jailed in Iowa, Scott County for allegedly operating under the influence and charges of violating the sex offender's registration requirements. So, unfortunately, they found Briasia's body. The police have not really released any information, but they did say that her remains were found in a rural part of Iowa last week. There is a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in this case, and that's being offered by the FBI. Davenport Police Chief Paul Skrgowski said, we've received confirmation that, that the remains are those of Brasia Terrell. Sikorowski said at a press conference, his voice wavering with emotion. This news is heartbreaking to both Brasia's family and our Davenport community, he said, while fighting back tears. Our deepest sympathies and heartfelt prayers are with all of those who are affected by this tragic loss. As this case turns from a missing child to a homicide investigation, we know our community is anxious for information regarding the investigation and any charges that may be forthcoming. We also understand the desire to see the perpetrator of this crime brought to justice, he added. However, in order to maintain the integrity of this investigation, one that's been going on for some nine months now, nonstop, I'm not able to comment on any specific investigative details at this time, and I hope you all will respect that for the integrity of the investigation. So investigators have been in constant contact with the little girl's family and speaking with them almost daily, according to Sikorowski. This is a very tragic and emotional time for them, and they need our community support, the police chief told reporters, noting that local social service agencies are providing counseling to all those impacted. 
So Breach's disappearance and death is being jointly investigated by the Devonport Police Department, the Iowa Department of Public Safety's Division of Criminal Investigations, as well as the FBI. So although the case is now officially being called a homicide investigation, Sikorowski revealed that the investigators have been treating it as such for the past several months. I can tell you, you know, they're affected by all this deeply, he said of the investigators. You know, it's a 10-year-old girl. No arrests have been made in the case so far, and investigators don't have a timeline for possible charges, according to Sikorowski. I want to assure our community that when we are able to share details on this investigation, we will. So, like I said, Dinkins is the only person of interest in this entire case. He's in jail right now on unrelated charges, and that's kind of all we have at this point. So, hopefully they can find some type of information, some type of proof that ties this guy, Dinkins, so we can get some justice for Briasia and her family. But if you happen to know anything about her case, you can go to the FBI's online tip line and let them know. You can also call the Davenport Police Department at area code 563-326-7979. And just remember, there's a $10,000 reward now for information leading to an arrest in Briasia's case. So I think that's about all for this week. I am having a new podcast host coming on board with Vanished in the Valley. So hopefully this this is going to be the first episode I'm uploading to them directly. So I'll be crossing my fingers. Hopefully everybody gets this episode and we don't have any hiccups. But if we do, that's probably what it's from. So by next week, all the little hiccups should be worked out and there shouldn't be too much of an interruption. So you know how to contact me. You can email me at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. You can also go to Instagram and search for Vanished in the Valley Athena. Or you can go over to Parlor and search for Vanished in the Valley Athena as well. Come say what's up, drop me a line, and just shoot the shit. That's about all I have for you right now. So, as I always say, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao. If you would like to become a producer and support Vanished in the Valley, you can go to Cash App and search for Vanished Athena, or you can go to the episode description, scroll down, and look for a link that says Support Acast Vanished in the Valley. Click that link and it'll bring you to a page where you can show us some love. Are you lost? Yes.